I woke up this morning and I thought when Jesus came to the world, when he was born, that uh, how, how amazing it was because there was like political unrest. Uh, people who were sick had to be isolated outside the community. I thought things haven't changed in 2,000 years, except, except the peace we can have in Christ and the ability we can have to walk with him. And of course, the eternal reward of being uh, through with all this at some point and uh, being in a place of perfect peace. Paul's been writing about that. Uh, we've been looking at it for nine weeks now. We've been exploring Romans chapter 1 through 8. And here we are. We're, we're at chapter 8 as we look at this uh, series, Back to Basics, looking at the biblical foundation, if you will, uh, of the gospel. So we don't become spiritually adrift. If we don't regularly go back to the basics, and as believers, the basics of the gospel, then I believe it's, it's, it's more likely than not that we'll drift away from those basics, that we will allow the world and the flesh, the own weakness of, our, of ourselves and others, the enemy, to, to cause us to, to look at the world differently than we ought, to look at him differently than we ought. And so we've been spending uh, the, this whole fall looking through uh, these eight chapters. We're in chapter eight. Uh, if you remember last week, I said we'll be looking at chapter eight over the next two weeks. So this will be the first half uh, this morning, and then the second half next week, of course. And, and Paul, up to this point, has been sharing the three facets of salvation. He spends over four chapters, almost five chapters, actually talking about the first facet again, which is justification. That's when we come to Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we receive him by faith. And that's the first facet. Now, once we are justified, made right with God, uh, we enter into the second facet, which is sanctification, which is a word which simply means to be set aside for God and to become more and more like Jesus. And we do this in the anticipation of the third facet, which is yet to come, which is glorification, which was when Jesus returns, we see him face to face, and all this is finished. We, we are fully who we are to be in him. So glorification is what's going to happen in the life of a believer, Sanctification is what is happening in the life of a believer, and justification is what has happened in the life of a believer. Now, you may remember last week we looked at Romans chapter 7, and in Romans chapter 7, Paul lets us in on his own experience with the struggle he has with temptation and sin. In fact, Paul says, he says, there's this time, he's writing as a believer, he says, there's a time as a believer even, he said, where I find myself wanting to do the right thing but I end up doing the wrong thing, and I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I end up doing it anyway. And he, and he writes this in Romans 7, 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives us the answer. Now, first, wait a minute. What's he saying? This body of death, this frustration, this, this belief that when he came to Christ that he wouldn't struggle with temptation anymore. And maybe some of you thought that as well. That you would say yes to Jesus, and all of a sudden there'd be no temptation. There'd be no struggles. There'd be no moment where you fell into sin. No, no, no. When we came to Jesus, the consequence of sin was paid for. Our ability to do so is not gone. That's, that's yet to come. And so Paul's frustrated with it. He says, who's going to deliver me from this? And then in verse 25, he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God within my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that it's been from faith from beginning to end. We come to Christ in faith, and we grow in Christ in faith. And you say, Craig, why this big review in chapter 7? Because when Paul wrote the letter of, to, to, Rome, to the Romans, when he wrote the book of Romans, this letter, when he wrote it, he, he didn't write it in chapters. Like the chapters and the verses were put much later 
uh, in our scriptures. And, and I'm glad they did, because this morning, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, I'm not saying, hey, turn to the middle of the book, I'm going to be there somewhere. That's what I'd have to do. So the chapters are put there for good reason, but sometimes they can lead us to think that every chapter is sort of its individual thought, or every verse is its individual thought. And we'll find as we head into chapter 8 that chapter 8 refers strongly back to the previous seven chapters. In fact, the very first, one of the very first words in chapter 8, of, of verse 1 in chapter 8 is therefore, this adverb. And any time you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask the question what? What is it there for? Like why does Paul use the word therefore? And he's going to look back to, the, to all the things that he's written about salvation up to this point. Justification being right, made right with God, which has happened in a believer's life. And this process of sanctification, which is happening in a believer's life. And he's writing, he's saying, therefore, because God has done this great work. And in Romans 8, then, he's going to contrast the weakness of the law and the power of the Spirit. And when we speak of power, what we're really talking about is the ability to act or produce an effect. What's in control? Keep that in your mind. When we think of power, it's what's in control. And, and where the believer's power is found, of course, isn't in our own abilities. It's not found in, in, our, in and of ourselves. It's found in the Spirit of God who resides in us. That the power of a believer is God's power at work in us. In fact, Romans 8 introduces us to the Holy Spirit specifically as the agent of Christ's power in and through us. And this isn't new teaching. Paul didn't come up with it. In fact, if we go back to the Old Testament in Zechariah 4, the second part of verse 6, we, we read these words. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the, the totality of Scripture has taught that the power of a follower of God isn't in ourselves, it isn't to to trust in the things of the world, is isn't to trust in our own gifts and abilities and talents. It's not to trust in anything, but it's to trust in God, that he is our power, that he's the one that brings us true freedom. And that's where the victory is really found. So Paul's taught us that this path to justification, this path to salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ-likeness is leading to becoming more and more and more like Jesus it is through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul started the letter in Romans 1.17 in saying that this whole life in Christ is from faith from beginning to end. And faith and trust and belief, these three words are all part of the same family. So we're to have faith in God. We're to trust in God. We're to believe in God. And so Paul is going to really share with us what some have called the victorious Christian life. The victorious Christian life. You may recall last week I said there's a difference between normal Christianity and abnormal Christianity. Abnormal Christianity is trying to do things on our own strength and we stumble and we fall. That may seem average. As we look around at fellow believers, we may say, man, it seems like that's the average. But that's abnormal Christianity. But God has a better plan. And at the end of chapter 7, what is it? And praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Paul in chapter 8, especially his first part we're going to look at this week, down to verse 17, he's going to unpack for us, what does that victorious Christian life really look like? And so in Romans 8, 1 through 11, we've, we really discover the overarching truth is that the, the believer is freed by the Spirit from sin. The believer is freed by the Spirit from sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me of chapter 8. There is therefore, therefore, what's it therefore? 
He's talking about all the other previous works that discussed with God from 1 to 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we'll never have to face the prospect of eternal condemnation. That's what Paul's writing of there. In fact, when he uses the word therefore, he's talking about what has happened. It's amazing work in a believer's life. And he uses this word now to emphasize that he's speaking of those who are already saved. And so I think sometimes people look at the first part of this chapter in Romans, and they think what could be happening is Paul is questioning your salvation. He's saying, I want you to to make sure that you really know that you really know that you really know who Jesus is. But he's not. Remember, he's writing to believers. And so he's writing in such a way as to sort of shake us for a minute and say, remember who you are. Remember what you have. Remember what God has promised. The Christian is free from guilt and from the everlasting enslavement, that the power of sin. But it's not, it's not eternal. God's eternal. Our salvation's eternal. But, but the struggle is not. And Francis Schaeffer rightly noted, he said, if I'm going to walk in this present life according to my high calling as a Christian, I need a, a strength higher than my own strength. And that's truth. We couldn't save ourselves. And so God sent Jesus as our Savior. And we receive him. And I'm here to tell you that once we accepted Christ, we can't sanctify ourselves either. Like we can't just work at it in our own strength and power and wisdom and it, it, it happened. No, 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 no. If we're going to live the life that God's called us to, this amazing life in Christ Jesus, then it's going to take a strength higher than our own. It's going to take the, the strength of God, his very spirit's power in our life. In fact, Paul shares these two blessings to believers just in these couple of verses here. He says there's no condemnation for the believer. Why? Because we've been justified. Condemnation, again, is the fear of punishment. And before we came to Jesus, we understood that the wage of sin is death. That's a pretty severe punishment. But as a believer, we don't have to fear that anymore. Jesus took the punishment for us. And so we're free. We're truly free. And that's the second truth. The believer's free. No condemnation. We've been justified. We get to have this freedom. And so John Stott knows, he says, it's because we have been liberated, set free, that no condemnation can overtake us. And I wonder, just, just hearing that, if, if that doesn't free some of us, because my guess is, in your Christian life, much like mine, there's times where I have forgotten that, and I fear that the great smiter was going to smite me. And, and there's, there's no fear of that in my life. I have a, I have a respect and awe of God. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of, of his love for me, and therefore I want to love him back by, by living like Jesus, but I get to do it in freedom, not bondage. We weren't, in other words, freed from, from bondage to be brought into bondage. We were freed from bondage to be brought into greater freedom. And so Paul continues in verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So again, Paul over and over again says, look, the law is not bad. Now, of course, when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about you should not covet. You should, all throughout the Old Testament, all these teachings on what we should and should not do. He's saying that's not bad. Like it's good. 
And if we could have kept it perfectly, we could have been saved by it. In other words, it's not the law's fault that we couldn't keep the law. It's our weakness. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't keep the law perfectly. The reason the, the, the law is weak is not because the law is weak. It's because we're weak. And so what did God do? He sent his son who kept the law perfectly. In fact, Scott points out five expressions of what God has done for us in reference to these verses. He says, first of all, God did send his own son. For God so loved the world, but he sent his son. His son coming involved him becoming incarnate. He took upon his divinity, humanity, while remaining sinless. That, that Jesus, fully God, took on humanity, became what, what theologians will call the God-man, fully God, fully human, so that in his flesh, humanity, he died on the cross for our sins. He was perfect. He was our substitute. We couldn't pay that price, so he paid it for us. And the amazing thing is, is that he did it to be a sin offering. And what happened? God condemned sin in the flesh. The wage of sin is again, what? Death. Jesus died for us, and we don't have to fear death because he already paid the price. And when we identify with his death and resurrection, we identify with the death. He died for our sins, but was resurrected for our life, that we would be saved. God sent his son and condemned sin in him so that, catch this, the righteous requirements of the law may be fully met in us. That's what the scripture teaches us. So when God looks at us, you say, Craig, how can God see us as 100% righteous when I know every day I'm not all that perfect? Because he sees us through the lens of Christ. But it's not just that he sees us as righteous. Again, Paul has taught us this because Jesus was righteous and we identify with him. It's accredited to us the righteousness of Christ which means that's sort of an accounting term, which means when he looks at our ledger, it says paid in full, fully met. Positionally, that's the heaven saying amen, I think, or, <laughs> or get it right, I'm not sure. We'll, we'll, we'll press on and see what happens. So personally, positionally, we are free in Christ, but daily, daily what Paul's gonna write about, daily, there's a journey we take with God to match up to who we are in him. So when you're struggling as a believer saying, I know the Bible says I'm 100% righteous, but I know what I just said to my friend and I shouldn't have said that. Join the club. We thank God that he's made us righteous in Jesus, but what we do daily out of love and his relationship with him by the power of the spirit of God is becoming more and more like Jesus. We're growing. See, there's a difference between these two words, condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is a word which uses for those who don't know Jesus yet. Condemnation is a fear of punishment, and the wage of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. But when we came to Christ, remember Paul's writing to believers now, there's no longer condemnation, but there is conviction. Condemnation is a warning of punishment that's going to come because of sin. Conviction is a warning that if we go in the direction of sin, we will be robbed of the present peace and power that God has for us today. It, it, conviction isn't about our eternity. It's about the here and now. Conviction is a gift, just like pain is somewhat of a gift. You say, it doesn't feel like a gift, but it is a gift sometimes. If we didn't feel pain, we would be in a whole lot of trouble. 
I read the story of a leper one time who felt no pain. He was sitting around a fire. His feet burned without even knowing it. Now, if you, most of you have feeling in your feet, if you put it near a fire, you're going to know really quick. Get it away. It's a gift. Conviction in the same way says, get it away. Head a different direction. Head toward God. Paul in chapter 7, what was his problem? Remember? He was focused on himself, not the Spirit of God. And so Paul in the first part of, of Romans 8, he's saying, look, be focused on the Spirit. It's all about where the power is. Who has control? See, the Spirit sets us free from the power of sin so that we can do what the law requires of us. We can actually live like Jesus. Are we growing in that? Yes. Will it be perfected when Jesus returns? But for now, we become more and more and more like him. Jesus spoke about this, this, this focus, this understanding. In Matthew 22, 37 and 39, Jesus said, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, we're to focus on God and and, and love him, to learn how to love him, to, to receive his love, to love him back, but also to allow the Spirit of God to take that love relationship and, and flow it through us to the world around us. And, and Jesus said, listen, if you can just love God and receive his love and give his love to others, you'll keep the commands. In Christ we've been saved so that one day we'll spend eternity with Christ in paradise. But God saved us to bear spiritual fruit. That's what Paul is saying. He says, why are we still here? We're here to grow in our love with God, to know him. And we're here to make him known, to share his love with the world around us. And he's saying that these things are possible, but not by our own power, only by the power of God. We're talking about holiness, which is Christ-likeness, being set aside. Making us holy is the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So it's interesting. What does Paul write in Romans 7? If if we're to sum it up, he says, we cannot keep the law because of the indwelling sinful nature. But then Paul in Romans 8.4, he says, we can become like Christ because of the indwelling spirit. He says he's contradicting himself. No, remember when he was writing that section in, in, in Romans 7, he never mentions the spirit of God. And he says, look, if you're focused on yourself and your own strength, you're going to fail. There's no power there. So he gives us the answer to which he proclaimed in verse 25 of chapter 7. He said, where's the answer? He's going to separate me from this body of sin. Jesus Christ is. He says, the answer is in the indwelling spirit, the very spirit of God who lives in every believer. And this is a fantastic truth. He's saying that, this, 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 this is such a glorious reality. He's saying, listen, walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. Now walk with him. Look at verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God or does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what's he doing here? He's giving us two mindset descriptions. And again, it's so easy to look at this and think at what he's doing and say, hey, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? But he's not. He's saying you are in Christ, so live like it. And he knows the trapping. He's saying the first mindset that, that, that all of us originally were born with was we were, we're going to do this on our own. I have what it's going to take. 
And he says this, this mindset of naturally desires leads to death. He says, but the mindset of the Spirit, focus on the Spirit. Lord, without you, I am weak. I need your strength. But that mindset actually leads to life and peace. And may we not fool ourselves. We are always mindful of something. Like we're either mindful of, of ourselves or something else being our power, or we're mindful of the Lord being our power. And so Paul's saying, listen, set your mind on Jesus Christ. Later in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he'll talk about the not being conformed to the image of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of the mind. It's interesting. That verse immediately follows a verse that says, give yourself fully over to God. Because it's not until we truly say, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. Forgive me for trying to step off the altar. In fact, Romans 12 one talks about a living sacrifice. One commentator said the problem with living sacrifice is it can always step back off the altar. Ever been there? Got him wholly yours? Eh, sort of. And, 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 and he said, no, no, no. Give yourself to God fully. He says, then, then allow your mind to be transformed. There's a battle waged in the minds of each and every one of us. We're to focus on Christ. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds to think and will and do the Spirit of God. The, spirit, uh, the things that the Spirit of God leads us to do. The Spirit gives us the power to be Christ-like. Remember it, it, that the Spirit's work is to make us holy, to, to grow in this peace, to grow in this power. And Stott rightly notes, these were challenging words when I read them the first time, and they're still challenging now as I read them to you. He writes this, he said, we would more eagerly pursue holiness if we were convinced that it was the way of life and peace. Let's sink in for a minute. Maybe part of the reason why average abnormal Christianity seems to be just floundering through life it's because we don't get the fact that, that holiness, becoming like Jesus, is the path to life and peace. If we believe that, we would seek it. We would desire it. We wouldn't fear it. We wouldn't become frustrated when it's not completed yet because we know that's going to happen, but not yet. That's glorification. But in the sanctification process, we'd say, Lord, make me more and more like you because I want to have life. And not eternal life. That's already promised to the believer. I mean life in the here and now. The, the unfortunate reality is there are believers who walk as if they're dead. And they have life. I know what it's like to be a believer and go, Lord, you promised me peace, but I don't feel real peaceful right now. <laughs> Ever been there? Lord, you promised wisdom. I'm not really. The Lord says, focus on me. It's my power. It's my work. Let me do this in desire. Scott so says, if we would more eagerly pursue holiness if we were convinced that it's the way of life. So look at verses 9 and 11. You, however, he's talking to us believers now, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. He said, if you're a believer, he said, you are a believer. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, we're still struggling on this side of paradise, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. As we're in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The question is whether or not we're going to let him control our life. 
And, and I was thinking about this, and, and what came to my mind, my mind sort of works a little different sometimes, is pest control. Right? I do not like bugs. I'll just be honest with you. Chris is ashamed of me even saying that. But I do not like bugs. I don't. I don't. And, and I grew up in, part of my life in Florida, and we have down here what's called palmetto bugs, right? A palmetto bug is really just a, a, an oversized cockroach. Okay, that's really what it is. And those things freak me out. As a kid, I mean, my parents still would, would well, they tell stories, but they would tell stories of me where they would say, uh, where I would scream. I mean, I'd see one, it just freak me out. And I'd say, someone has to kill, I don't kill bugs because they have friends. And so I have other people kill the bugs and then they're gonna go after them. That's how it's still, we okay, Chris? Okay. And, 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 so, and so really, the one thing I really hold, about my, hold against my parents to this day is they never brought anyone in to, for pest control until after I went to college. Like I left. And also they did pest control. I'm like, what in the world? Why didn't you do that while I was here? This is amazing. But here's what we know about pest control, okay? Someone didn't come in and teach palmetto bugs not to come in the house anymore. Like, that's not what happened. We didn't have a palmetto bug trainer, you know, who controlled them. They brought in an outside influence to make sure they didn't come in. Is that not what pest control is? Come on now. When we say we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit isn't just like training all the things of the world not to come in and at us again, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil is always against us. What do I mean by that? The world, the culture. Have you noticed the culture typically doesn't represent what Christ would want to represent? Come on. The flesh, that's us. You realize we're still weak without Christ? And the devil, self-explanatory. He doesn't train those things like to be better. What he does is he indwells us and when we're focused on him, tells those things back off their mind. This is my territory, not yours anymore. And so the battle is in the mind. The battle is in do we believe who we are in Christ and will we submit ourselves to him? And I love the fact that Paul, in the very end of verse 11, even talks about our mortal bodies. He's saying they're weak. He says, but when the resurrected body, the new body, by the way, man, am I looking forward to the new body, right? It doesn't tire. It doesn't ache the new body. He says, that's going to be a perfect instrument for our glorified selves. It's going to be perfect. For now, we're here. So in Romans 1 through 11, we read Paul talking about the work of salvation that leads us to this place where we don't have to fear condemnation. In fact, the believer is freed by this power, by the spirit from sin. But then there's this other wonderful truth in the second part of our passage this morning, Romans 8, 12 through 17. Therefore, the believer is obligated to the spirit for life-giving power. We're obligated. We can't do it on our own. We're obligated. We've got to rest on him. Faith, trust, belief. Look at verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're not in debt to this. The world, the flesh, and the devil, we're not in debt to we're in debt to what? The Spirit. We're obliged to Him because of the work of salvation in our life. And so what do we do then? If God is the power and He's doing all the heavy lifting, do we have any responsibility in becoming like Jesus? And Paul says, absolutely. We've got to put to death every day that part of us that Jesus already killed but still in play until we return. The old self. How many of you, come on now, how many of you came to Christ, thought that thing was dead and never going to raise its head again? 
only to find that it's still in play. And, and he says, so we got to put that to death. How do we do that? We acknowledge it's there. We acknowledge the weakness of it. And we say, Spirit, I want to focus on you. You're the one I'm focusing on today. Lead me and direct me today. In the midst of a conversation where you see that old self coming up, anyone have one of those conversations? Like, okay. One person's even raising their hand. It's, what do you do? You stop. You may not say it out loud because you're actually in a conversation. You want to be put in a saying asylum. But you, want, you, want, you, just, you just simply stop. You stop and you say, Lord Jesus, right? He is indwelling you. That's a relationship we have with the Spirit of God. Lord Jesus, be better in me. Don't make me better. Be better in me. Help me be like you. Help me handle this better. There's a battle and struggle, but there's always victory in Jesus. What am I saying? Sanctification is not automatic, but it's possible. Well, we have a part to play in it. Sanctification comes when we walk in the Spirit, when we, when we understand we're alive in the Spirit. And, and that's the paradox of the Christian life. We must continually kill what is already dead. We're responsible to do that part. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do just that. One thing it takes is, is a total mind shift. You, you understand this. What the world calls life, what the world calls life, self-indulgence, leads to alienation from God which is reality, sort of living dead, although we've been made alive in Christ. And when we desire what the world desires, when we think we'll find fulfillment in what the world says is fulfilling, the enemy promises us everything, and in the end, takes everything. God, however, came not to, not to kill and destroy, but to give life, life abundantly. So what do we do? We, we, when, when we put to death that part of us that pursues things which aren't going to bring life, the world looks at us and says, we're crazy, we're being fools, but that's authentic life. I had a friend who once said to me, I'll become a Christian later in life when I've had all fun. Right? Here's the problem. It's foolish to think that things that God says will harm you will ever bring you real. I can remember sitting with friends and them telling me about their weekend and how much, how much fun it was, although they couldn't remember half of it. Come on, right? My heart just They didn't have the life I had. See, it's, it's difficult. Remember, Paul's writing to believers, and if you're here investigating the things of Christ, we were all where you are right now. And I just want you to know God loves you so much that he's done this work to bring you into real life, not, not a life you have to pursue, a life given to us in his name. And if you're a believer, man, we be reminded of that life. Then we look at the final portion of our, of our scripture for this morning, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verses 14 and 15 explain that those led by the Spirit are children of God. They're children of God. You guys are going to be up there for a little bit. Okay. Like, like, we've been adopted into the family of God. And I, I just want to camp here for a minute because it's so easy, so easy for us to just sort of look past this. Adoption. 
In Paul's day, when someone was adopted, they would take them into the town square and they would literally put their hand, the father would put his hand on this adopted child, his son, and he'd say, from this day forward, this is my son. And, and, and all throughout the empire, that child was looked at as a biological child, full heirs to the kingdom, okay? Listen to me, believer. Listen to me. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. And the scripture says that we get to call him Abba, which is Aramaic, Aramaic for Daddy. One time I was praying in a church service and I called our Heavenly Father Daddy and I had a lady come up and said, you have no right to call him that. So I was being disrespectful. She was older than me, so I wanted to be respectful. I said, I gotta respectfully disagree with you. I took her to this verse. I said, the scripture tells me he's my daddy. He's my father. I'm not a, I'm not a partial child. I'm not a partial citizen of the kingdom. In fact, the word affirms that I'm his child. That the fruit of my life as I grow in Christ affirms that I'm his child. The Holy Spirit's witness affirms that I'm a child. If you're a believer this morning, you're a child of God with the inheritance of heaven awaiting you and the very power of God indwelling you by his spirit. And if that doesn't excite you this morning, that's life. That's life. But then we have to look at the disclaimer here, Romans 8, 17. One of those verses as believers we like to over, just sort of read over sometimes. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's a good thing provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I share with you before that Romans 8 is my favorite chapter of all scripture. My favorite verse is Romans 8, 18, which we'll start with next week. And if you want to let me let you know, no, I'm not going to go ahead, but you can read ahead and find out what a great verse it is. But it talks about why we can endure suffering, why, why we would embrace suffering. But we know suffering makes us more like Jesus. So it's not on the mountaintop that we become like him. It's in the valleys when we learn to trust him. He says, we're going to suffer. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tough times, tribulation, all these things. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. We are God's children. He empowers us. There's victory in him. And I like what Francis Schaeffer wrote. He said, one day when we accepted Christ as Savior, he's describing the Christian life. One day when we accepted Jesus as Savior, wonder of wonders, we became the children of God. But if we truly became the children of God, we are at this moment indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if indwelt by the Spirit of God, surely there'll be some evidence of it in our lives. What a beautiful picture of us growing in Jesus. I want you to notice three things as we wrap up this morning. The first is nowhere in this section does it say that only certain believers have the Holy Spirit. It says you came to Christ, you were indwelt by the Spirit of God. Understand that. The Spirit of God is in you. And God doesn't do anything halfway. You have the full spirit of God in you. You go, well, why then? Why then do I, don't I always feel it? It's, it's, it's a matter of the mindset. It's of control. It's a, have you given yourself to God? Not for salvation, but like, is he directing your life? In fact, the, the degrees of the spirits working in people's lives is to the degree that we surrender to him. So Paul says you're saved. You don't have to fear, but if you want to grow, you got to continue to surrender. I just encourage you this morning that if you've yet to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, bow your knee to him this morning. And by the way, if you're a believer this morning, continue to bow your knee to him. Let him give you peace. Let the power of the Spirit reign in you. And next week, I'm so excited as we head into the last part of this and we talk about the everlasting grip of God on our life. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much for just the way that you love us, the way that you sent your son to demonstrate your love. You didn't just say you love us, you demonstrated it on the cross. And, and those of us who have received you as Lord and Savior, that we don't have to fear punishment. Jesus took all that for us. He bore that on the cross. And Lord, even this morning, if there's anyone who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, someone who's watching online, maybe even throughout this week, but Lord, in the quietness of their own home, that they would just say yes to you. Father, for those of us who have made that decision, we understand we still walk by faith. We still need your power. We still need your direction. We do from beginning to end. And thank you for promising us so much. We're your children. Our inheritance is the kingdom. Your spirit indwells us. And so, Father, teach us what it means to surrender moment by moment, focused on you, receiving that life and peace that, that is ours, promised ours in Jesus. As we anticipate the day when Christ will return and the ultimate peace in life will be ours. Lord, thank you. Thank you as we gather here this morning, we we're able to put your glory on display. But as we leave this place, as we scatter throughout this region, I pray, Lord God, that we would do so in a way that would give others a desire to have the same hope we have in you. We pray this in our Lord, Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.